Ere his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it, and thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, Chris. Is the echo gone or still there? Okay. You get lucky sometimes at the soundboard. The kids are, did I say the kids are not invited to kids' church today? They are not. Um, no kids' church today, although there's coloring and I think some busy bags in the back room. Uh, Jesse, do you mind taking whatever mine is? It's the furthest one to the right with some volume in it down a little bit. This is a, uh, it's so the one furthest to the right, yeah, just down a little bit. The, this is a, a, first off, the, the passage for this morning, I like to open with a phrase from it, this one, why were you searching for it? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Why were you searching for me? Uh, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? And Luke's gospel has this relationship, all the gospels do, to the temple in some ways, that Christ is sort of going through life as one directed towards the temple, one who's sort of becoming the temple. Famously, as many of us know, at the end of the Gospels, the temple is shroud is torn in two, and in some sense it, it, it mirrors both the Holy Spirit sort of going out into the world in some ways. It mirrors that Christ is the new temple. It mirrors all these sorts of things. And so temple plays an important role. And here at Luke's Gospel, in the beginning, he's there... Um, at 12, uh, as he's lost on the way. I'm trying to think that things have happened fast. You know, uh, two nights ago was Christmas Eve, and now Jesus is 12. Um, as they say, they grow up fast. Um, which is to say that the, the gospel writers don't have a lot of info or don't provide a lot of information on what it was like for the young child Jesus to be in the world. They kind of leave that out. Now, the, the Gnostic gospels... Um, uh, the w- Gospels that didn't make the New Testament or in some sense are way later writings. One of them from around 200 AD. So most of our Gospels precede 100 AD. There are some still being written around 250. One of them famously has Jesus sort of like putting one of his friends to death and bringing him back to life. Um, 
making stones uh, uh, out of pigeons so that they can throw them at people. Jesus is a bit of a bully in these other Gospels. And so as, as the tradition branched off in ways that are not part of the tradition today, they tried to fill in what must the young Jesus have been like. But both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both Matthew, Mark, and June, uh, John, give us almost no information around that. Luke provides this scene, but most of what the activity we see of Jesus performing in the Gospels happens after his baptism. Baptism is a scene in which Jesus is, is received into the waters and the heavens rip open in Mark's phrase, and the Spirit defends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. And that scene is the one that launches his ministry in many ways. But Luke, interestingly enough, puts this scene at the start of his gospel. This is the first time that Jesus speaks at all. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And that starts this story that Luke is going to tell us in this way about this one who is one with the father in many ways. Now, one of the things, this obviously doesn't apply to anybody here, I guess, for the people who are listening, but one of the, this is a pastor's joke, um, so laugh sympathetically to some degree. As I was talking to my mom yesterday, this is what I wanted to start with, but I always like to start a little bit holier than the joke. Um, <laughs> is that, uh, and she says, I said, do you have church service tomorrow? And she said, yeah, this, that, and the other. Um, and I said, do you think there should be church after Christmas? And she was like, yeah, you know, I don't like it when they cancel church. And so we talked for about 45 minutes, and I said, well, have fun at church tomorrow. And she said, oh, we're not going. <laughs> I was like, this is the, this, I think the church should do X. Uh, okay, I'll see you there. Oh, no, 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 that's not, not the way it works. So thank you all for being here is the way of, of sort of saying that. I, my mom, I told her, I said, you're, you're the classic American churchgoer right now. Is yes, they should do that. Do you want to help? No. Um, uh, sorry for the people who listen to this at home. I, for, uh, yeah, just woe is me a man of unclean lips or something like that. There's just, you just got to step in it sometimes. Um, and so we have this morning, this is one of the last uh, Sundays we have this sort of four-scriptured reading thing where we have the psalm, we have the book of Colossians, we have um, this Samuel scene and this Luke scene that interestingly are mirrors to each other. I mean, uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but this is our last Sunday. We sort of have these four scriptures that we try to make into an image for us. Um, uh, the image, you know, that, that comes from the psalm in some ways is that, that this is uh, a phrase that I learned this week, but I like is that, that many of these psalms that we read around Christmas and Easter contain an ecology of praise that all of creation praises in this moment. We lack language for the vastness of what happens in the incarnation and the cross and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, um, many of us, can silo off our lives in ways that make it so that we trust God with our souls, but we don't trust God with our money or with our lives or with this, or that this is religious news, but there's other news to be had. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that, like, you can pick exaggerations of this. You know, I trust Jesus with my heavenly treasures, but I don't trust him with my bank account. Um, people who live lives like that. Um, 
But in many ways, it's, it's, it's part of becoming a Christian is letting this truth of God with us, that God took up flesh and residency in the world, become more and more true about what we believe in the world. More and more true of what we believe in our interactions with other people. More and more true in how we understand ourselves. More and more true. And so when the Psalms praise, uh, place creation, praising Jesus in this way, praising God in this way, what they're breaking open for us is this ability to see that it's everything that's caught up in this. It's not just souls. It's not just um, economics. It's not just uh, what happens when you die. But in some sense, all of this is brought about as God's creation, and all of it has a fulfillment in praising God. And the psalmist names that well. This psalm, the one we led on Christmas Eve, the psalms that, that name what does it mean that God is the creator. And I've, I've long used the Wendell Berry phrase about part of one of the truths about who we are is finding ourselves as creatures again, um, not as consumers um, and not as machines, which I think the modern world is pushing us towards. But we see ourselves as creatures of the divine, and seeing creation praise like that, I think, in the psalm helps us. The Colossians reading, I think, is interesting, and, and, and it ties to what happens particularly with Samuel, but in a way related to Christ, because those readings parallel each other so well, is um, it, Paul has finished telling them to take off the deeds of darkness and to put on Christ, to clothe yourself. This is one of those phrases that, that you think about, and it becomes so rote for us, I think, at times. But what does it mean to clothe yourself in this way? To take off the deeds of darkness and sin and the past and clothe yourself in humility and grace and truth and love and the things that Paul lists in Colossians. What does it mean to re-understand the way we move into the world as one's clothed by something else? That, that fits that ecology of praise. We, we then dress, in a way, differently by seeing creation in that way. And I don't mean this in the, the old purity culture form. It's a joke two people will get. Um, <laughs> but we dress differently in the ways in which we begin to present and approach the world because of what Christ has clothed us in. The Christmas Eve sermon from... Um, uh, Leo the Great, he's, he's had this phrase, Christian, remember your dignity, which I've been thinking a lot about. And, and that's sort of what this clothe yourself again means, is, is remember that Christ has saved you. Remember what's been done for you. Because if that's true, we go into the world in different ways. Now this brings us, I think, to the, the difficulty and the fun of the Luke and Samuel text, which is they are more revelatory texts than they are teaching texts. Uh, they are texts that, that show us something, but they don't exactly imply anything for us. I mean, one of the applications I like that I think is worth something in the modern world, but I don't think it speaks well to what happens in this scene, is that um, Mary and Joseph have lost Jesus, and the place that they find him in the end is back at the center of their religious life. 
I don't know if many of you are familiar with this phrase, deconstruction. It's happening to many sort of post-evangelical Christians, people who are finding that uh, the gospel that they grew up with has failed them. They still want something of the goodness of what they had knew in Jesus and the church, but find the script that they had received so poor. And one of the things I would say this passage speaks for people who find those find themselves in that place is to go back to the religious site, which in after um, after the, the, the Jewish Christian split that happens in Acts is now the church, to find yourself in church again. And this isn't to say that that has all the answers, and certainly not to go to the churches where you're already finding yourself in trouble, but as I always tell people, they're like, I'm worried, I can't find a church uh, that I fit into, and I'm like, that can't be true. Like, there's <laughs> we have so many churches in this world, there's got to be one that at least doesn't offend you. Um, but if you go to a place centered around Christ, you might find renewal there again. You might find life there again. But that, I think, turns this too much into a lesson because what happens in this Luke story is sort of a revelatory thing. And this is that we see this in this phrase often, but Mary treasures all these things and pondered them in her heart. These are things that we, as readers of Luke, and and Ray, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a little bit of reader response criticism where you're supposed to take on sort of that notion that Mary is taking these things and treasuring her hearts as she's living the story. The reader is supposed to take them on and treasure them in their heart as they're reading the story. So Mary is doing this, but it's asking the, the reader also, take up this lesson and treasure it in your heart. And part of the reason Luke is doing that is because it'll help you make sense of the story as you go through it. But these are often revelatory aspects. These are, these are um, texts that, that just aren't meant to be application for us, but are to, to, to show us something. I mean, one of the things that they show us importantly, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus had a good Jewish upbringing. His parents took him to the temple every year for Passover. And that, that says two things. One is that his parents, he is born to parents who um, participate in the religious life of Israel, of God's chosen people in this way. Throughout this century and other centuries, the church has always tried to, to de-Judify Jesus, to take him away from his relationship to the Old Testament in Israel. Um, and this is a temptation that comes from way back in the 400s all the way through um, essentially what we see in some of um, uh, Nazi Germany, the stripping of Jesus of his Jewishness. But Luke won't let that happen. In the scene previous to this, Jesus is presented at the temple for his circumcision. It's, and if you read, um, if you go to Bible Gateway and type in temple and then click on the Gospel of Luke, the first five chapters are temple, 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 where, where um, uh, Zechariah is, temple, where they bring Jesus, temple, where Jesus is lost from his parents, is where is he at, temple. There's this building up of this temple, 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 and that their relationship is to the religious life of Israel. And that's supposed to mean something for the readers. It's to say that God doesn't just come out of nowhere. He doesn't appear just as a Superman figure with no relationship to anything. But he, he appears as the God of Israel. And that he goes for the Passover, I mean, uh, it's like my parents, my parents didn't bring me to church on Christmas Eve. But, but you could read that as he goes to the, on the regular feast day, they go to church. 
Um, on the regular feast day, they go to synagogue. But what incidentally Passover, as, as we know, is a stand-in for is the rescue of Israel out of Egypt, of slavery. And what Christ is going to enact in his life is the rescue for us out of the slavery of sin and death and bringing us into new life. In the next text that Jesus speaks in, in Luke 4, he, he talks about um, uh, the Jubilee, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim good news. And what this gospel writer, Luke, is building up in these is these sort of revelatory scenes to show us who Christ is in this way. But going back to the Samuel text, this is a... Uh, funny story. There's a there's a book titled Story Shaping Story by Willard Swartley. Willard Swartley was a professor at AMBS, the Mennonite Seminary, for a long time, and he wrote this book, particularly using Mark's gospel, but it happens in all the gospels. Is how the story of Israel and the story of what God has done there is shaping the story that we hear about Jesus. So the waters of baptism, the waters of the Red Sea, the temptations in the wilderness, Israel's time in the wilderness, that this story is shaping story. Now, one of my favorite parts about Willard Swartley is he was one of the most modest scholars ever. And for some reason, he reviewed his own books on Amazon. And his response on story shaping story was, doesn't seem to have been taken up in the academy. Most people aren't reading it today. Must not have been worth much. Willard Swartley. Um, they're down now, um, but when we were in seminary, we were like, did he honestly critically review his books on Amazon? Um, and when we talked to people who knew Willard, that's correct. Willard reviewed, gave his book one-star review on Amazon. And biblical studies books don't get more than like 10 reviews. So like having a one one-star review is weird enough. Having a one one-star review from the author of the book is weird enough. Point being is, is that what we see here, this book actually has been circulated more since that review appeared, although it's not because of that review, but that, that this, this notion of that this story of Israel is shaping the story of Jesus. And in, in the way that we look at this more as Christians is that Christ lives perfectly that story from Adam's temptation, from Israel's temptation, from the life of sin. He lives it obediently to God. Whereas Israel failed in living that, Christ lives it obediently to God. And so Luke, using the, the, the idea of story shaping story, the only one to do this, takes this idea of Samuel in the temple. And if you read the full passage around what happens in Samuel here is, Hannah, too, his mother, has a miraculous birth. She is barren for many years, and God causes her to have child. And in the meantime, Hannah has promised her son Samuel to the Lord. And so he is to serve in the temple, which sounds nice and fine. Except for if you start at the beginning of that chapter, Eli and his sons, more his sons, Eli's sons, are abusing the temple. There is darkness in the temple. There are those who are pulling it down. And so what Hannah has promised her son to is service among sort of liars and cheats. And we see this, too, with Mary, too, is, is, is that we don't know much about what the temple is like when Jesus is 12. And this is a, a classic um, story because it's around what most ancients would see as the coming of adulthood, around 12 or 13. Um, 
And so this is why Jesus is perhaps here at this time. But as Jesus goes into his ministry and cleanses the temple, we know that this temple, too, had its own darkness within it. And so both these mothers are seeing both their sons, um, who were received in miraculous ways, off in these temples, off in these places, in which we would just see as good news, if we don't read the full context of the stories, is actually a greater challenge than not. So Jesus is one who has gone and heard these stories of liberation, and, and Luke is portraying his stories of being shaped in, in this way. The, the last thing on, on sort of, before we close probably this sermon, uh, one more analogy after that, so two, if you're keeping score at home, um, is that the first is that the dangers of being a child in this world, uh, I should say, does anybody wonder how they lose Jesus? Okay, well, there's, they, they travel in packs in the ancient Near East, and so if Mary and Joseph are at the front or in the middle and Jesus is at the front or back in the middle, have you seen Jesus? Somebody might say, yeah, recently, this, that, and the other. And you get far enough away, and it becomes clear he's not there. Um, so it's a completely human thing, but I think occasionally people will be like, how do you lose the Son of God after that miraculous birth? And it's like, it's, uh, I think the last time we had this passage, I had mentioned you'd go on mission trips with youth, and I always said it was important you came back with the same number of kids. It may not be the right kids, but, but you came back as, uh, with the same number of kids was more important. Um, and so they, he gets sort of lost in that way. But there's dangers of being a child in our world and dangers of being a child in that world. To be a 12-year-old and to be um, brought into adult spaces in any sort of society comes with dangers. I think we see these stories as very quaint and nice, um, but there's a bit of a, a struggle with them too, that there's more going on. And what Jesus does, in, in this case, similar to Samuel, is he finds himself in the temple, in, in this image, discussing with the people there, and they're impressed with him. Um, they're impressed with the way in which he acts and is carried into that place. Um, and when they finally get there, the, his mother and father ask, why were you searching, or, uh, son, why have you treated this way? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for your mass? M me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But he didn't, they did not understand what they were saying to him. That what we find in this story, and this is this revelatory aspect of it, is Jesus is saying that he had to be in the house of his father who is God. He had to be in the place where that was being enacted, the story lived, that the, the temple was the place that Jesus needed to be in. And it, Luke, as many of us know, writes Acts as the second companion to his book. And, and the church in Acts moves from the temple out into the world, which is exactly the prophecies as they were spoken, is that the temple would have the waters that flow out into the world of healing and that all the nations would come to them. So that Luke places Jesus here, not just as, as in the Samuel way, but as one, because Samuel grows in stature, but not in the same way that Jesus does. He is one who is um, participating in the life of the temple, whereas Christ is coming as one who claims his sonship within relationship to the Father. Now this we are familiar with with adoption in our world, but in the ancient Near East, this would have been more a statement of, of ownership in that reality. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It was a way of saying that this is my home. 
This is where I belong. This is the truth of who I am. He's placing himself in the house of God as a son in a way that would be, um, what does it say? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Whether they didn't understand it because nobody had spoken this way before, or they didn't understand it because, um, because what does it mean for your 12-year-old to say that I'm, I'm living in this house as if I were the son of God the Father? Um, we don't know. There isn't an answer to that question. But going back to what I said at the beginning, it is for us to be like Mary, I think, and to store these things in our heart. So that as Jesus grows in stature and wisdom and in favor with man, God and man, same thing described of Samuel, we can see how this is God's son acting out his patterns in the world. We can store this up so that when we go through the story and see one who cleanses temples or teaches about what the Father is like or who shows us the patterns of the kingdom, we know that comes from one who even at the beginning claimed himself as a son in the household of God. Let us pray. God, we come this Sunday to celebrate the gift of your incarnation, the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us. This, as the psalmist proclaimed, is big news. It is perhaps the only news that matters. That the Creator has walked onto the stage of history. And creation is in that way one that awaits the praise. We hear it in the book of Colossians too, how we are to clothe ourselves differently in this world because of what Christ has done. To take off deeds of darkness and sin and destruction and put on the life of life and goodness and truth and love. And so too we saw how Luke in your gospel writing, and the way that Jesus comes on the scene is one that mirrors Israel and the stories of the past. But Christ comes as the faithful Israel, as the faithful Adam, and in that way is one who is able to repair and to save us, to show us the path unto new life. As he claims to be in the temple learning from his father, as he becomes the new temple for us. May we too become those who can listen to him and to find and to store up in our hearts the things that he says to us, the questions he asks, the direction he points, so that we can see in him the image of you, the invisible one. We ask all this in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.